Welcome to 801, Critical Conversations Beyond Backstage, Episode 1. Tonight, in the pod bar, we have Herman, John, and Jen. If you remember, from our previous episode's last call, we welcomed Tyler Rankin. How do you find a line between self-advocacy and ego? Ooh, that's a question. Yeah, and and I think there's a lot of avenues and dynamics in it, too, because it's going to be different for every discipline. You know, as as a technical director, that's so much uh, of what we do when we're in the feasibility aspects of a project. How much of it is being the no TD that we all aspire not to be and saying no because of unknown reasons versus knowing that your venue can't support it. You don't have the resources to do it as well as you would like. So many different avenues there. You can also come at it from a different point of view where you think about it in terms of contract negotiation. How much am I getting paid? How much of this is how good I think I am versus what the organization can do and so on. There's a lot of facets to this question. So what's super interesting to me right off the bat, John, is is your answer is really analytical, which of course is what I expect knowing you. But my answer is like all emotion. (laughs) Yeah, that does not surprise me at all, right? So, and I think you actually have a good story about the the difference between this in in a question you were asked in in an interview. But to me, like the line between self-advocacy and, and ego is always about finding your own emotional balance. Yeah. And Jen's referring to a question I had in a job interview, actually, for my current job, where someone asked me how I, as a TD, deal with becoming emotionally attached to scenery. But the way I answered it is I said, in my experience, the set designer is generally emotionally attached enough to scenery for both of us. And I don't get emotionally attached to scenery. I mean, I don't know how many flats I've built and how many pieces of scenery I've thrown away, right? Or how many pieces of scenery I've taken a sawzall to. I will also say that one of my favorite parts is strike because it it puts a button on a project. Did you have a show that was built and on stage when COVID hit that no one saw? Yeah. Did you have some emotion about that? I'm hoping so. If I had to put a singular emotion on how I felt about all of it, it was really empathy for the students that were graduating and the opportunities they weren't going to get. In particular, the TD I was mentoring at the time who was putting together his first automation system and the first turntable that we were doing at our organization. He now is going to school specifically for automation control, but that was going to be his first like real automation, big project in academia. And, and so I, I felt really bad that he wasn't able to TD this musical that he was very amped up for the culmination was anticlimactic for him. And I had huge empathy for, for that student in particular, because he was my direct mentee but across the board to me in in looking at tyler's question like that emotion that you felt whether it was for your student who didn't get the opportunity who was clearly having their own feelings that's what the that's what the designer feels right even if the design is like literally on a napkin at that point 
you've like put all this brain power and creative energy into it and then you know the director wants massive change to your idea and there's like feeling about that right you have to let it go but how do you figure out do you do do you let it go are you getting walked over should you really be advocating harder for this idea that you have what do you think herman yeah i mean i think that's an interesting thought process when you consider the the uh, the context that that tyler was giving us of like you're you're essentially challenging the authority figure you're, you're essentially challenging the director and that's a tricky line you know there's some people sometimes that are defending their design too much and it's not really worth it. You need to let it go, but the designer maybe maybe doesn't recognize that, hey, that, that element that's in question actually isn't doing the story justice. But however, there are certainly been the flip scenario where the director's choice isn't doing the story justice, but the director's at the helm of that story. So how, how do you... And that's that's the essence of Tyler's question. How do you challenge that without coming across and kind of in turn blackballing yourself from any future shows? I have tremendous amount of privilege in the fact that I can be a little bit choosy in what projects I take and don't. I sort of seek out projects where I have great communication and great collaboration with the designers Rarely as a TD am I interfacing directly with the director. It all sort of rolls downhill eventually. And if the designer and the director aren't in sync with each other um, in communication style, in what they want, in in how they collaborate and how they work, eventually it affects the TD and the scene shop. And paint always is the area that delayed decisions by a director impacts paints the most. I I personally am very selective and careful about organizations and the people and the types of projects that I will take on and where I want to work to be able to, to have that kind of process that ultimately enables me as the TD to have the trust of the producer of the organization to be able to make the decisions and I'm a big budget person. So I don't, I don't, and this is another area where the design side versus the technical side really differs because we either have the money or we don't. We either have the hours in the day or we don't. And I will back up those statements and show my work and, and say, you know, this is how much it costs. I think I've been doing this for a long time. You hired me, I work here. And this is what I do. And that over time with successes gains that trust and that back and forth between me and the set designers and the producers that I work with. But I think that's, that's key. There is that, that back and forth at the end, you you need to, you need to lead the conversation with the openness because at the same time, you can't smack down a decision and say like, Oh, the numbers don't agree with that because a designer can make the choice. And if the numbers in fact don't agree, then the, the scenic designer can come back to you and say, well, actually, I actually like this piece more than this other element in this other gag. So why don't we look into cutting that in order to get some money back for this thing? If I were to crudely divide it up as the tangible arts and the intangible arts, meaning tangible being the scenic, the costume arts uh, designs versus sound lighting video, uh, it's, a, it's a little easier to be in that 
tech moment uh, and talk to your director, choreographer, and client, producer, whatever it is, and just say, if you're an intangible designer uh, as myself, like as a lighting designer, it's easier for me to say like, hey, I, I get that you may not like the idea, but let me let me show it to you first. Just, hey. just give me two minutes, I'll program a cue, let's try it out. And if you do have a good leader, good authority figure, and they are open, that there will be that willingness of like, sure, let's try it out. But I, the, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just saying, but going back to, to the Tyler question, to Tyler's context, even, even what seems like such an innocent, simple, basic statement or a question of a designer telling the producer, the director, the whatever, whoever that authority is of like, hey, do you mind if I show you this first before we cut this? It seems so easy. It seems so obvious. The gaining the confidence to ask that question uh, is gained over time, over experience. We can do it now because we have years of experience behind us. But if we look at Tyler, Tyler's a student. So how does the student who has yet to accumulate that experience, the average student, uh, how does the student overcome that hump of being able to come forth and, and give their equivalent state question of like, hey, do you mind if we try it out? Or could, could we have a separate conversation about this? How, how did they overcome that up? And, and I think especially um, in lighting, you know, how many times have we all sat in a production meeting and someone has said, oh, lighting will fix that in the room, right? <laughs> We've all been there. And whether that's a costume piece or a choice in a paint color or whatever it is. And so I fully, I fully own the fact that scenery is much easier to pick apart and put a cost and labor amount on it than anything else because you're not dealing with bodies you're not dealing with atmospherics and HVAC right like there's so many other variables in the other areas. Herman just to go back to what you said about how does a student gain that that confidence or or a young working professional gain that confidence I think it that's why it's critical that we look at the environments that we're creating right? I don't mean the scenic environments. I mean the literal day-to-day -day environment that we're working in. And, and we look at problem areas in those environments because we're, we're all, whether you're a technical director or, or a draper or a lighting designer, we're all artists coming to this, right? And so having some sense of security and openness in our environment is really important to actually collaborating and creating art and telling stories. And I really think that a little bit, you, you inadvertently hit the nail on the head, but in my recent experience, especially, I think that the self-advocacy really starts at that contract negotiation. You don't always necessarily need to have it back and forth, but having an understanding of what the producer or the employer is offering you in your contract and what the big picture is for the work versus the compensation. And, and, and that's where an organization starts off by valuing you as a professional. And, and, and I, um, I would say about half of the time I've negotiated salaries and other times I've been happy with, with the scenario, but that's been over years and years and that's a learned thing and negotiating salary is very difficult and it's very awkward and, and there's 
so many studies about how different people of different backgrounds are willing to negotiate salaries or not. And, and as a cisgendered white man, I definitely fall into the pool of people that are most likely to self-advocate. And, and, and I think that, that um, those studies may not be as specific in theater as opposed to like general work environments, but it's something that we need that is real and needs to be discussed and needs to be normalized. And, and, and you know, I, this is straying a bit, but um, the idea of being able to take an unpaid internship or a low paid internship, it perpetuates certain privilege amongst the populations that take those those positions and and that is not the inclusive environment that performing arts should be pushing forward in my opinion so if i if i were to kind of sum up it sounds like uh when we again when we consider tyler's question of that self-advocacy and when we think back even to I'm sure our younger years uh, as students in early career where we became our own obstacle uh, and, and how do we overcome ourselves there's nobody else but just ourselves in a way um, and it sounds like what I'm hearing you guys say is that really we're we're also conveying a message to the educators uh, that the mission of self-advocacy falls to those that are the educators. It, it falls to all of us. I'm gonna include myself there, not as an academia because I don't mean educators in academia sense, but an educator could be a, a professional mentor of some kind. It could be the designer to the assistant relationship. Um, there's a lot of uh, different kinds of relationships that we could talk about there that could take the title on as educators. So it falls to us educators out there to create that work environment, uh, that environment in general, to make that student feel confident enough within themselves to come forth and, and elevate their own voice and save themselves. We're not elevating it for them. We're just providing them with the confidence, the tools, the support, the resources for them to take that step forward. Let's focus on the second part of this question. Right. Let's talk. Let's talk about the ego portion. Uh, let's talk about a scenario in which we assume that that student, that young professional, or or hell, that that older professional, they're actually in the wrong. They're actually self-advocating too much. Uh, they're actually becoming what Tyler was saying. Like now, they're just unintentionally blackballing themselves. You you you. you in one foul swoop, you kind of don't become a good collaborator. Uh, you, you set up, you, you provide that unbalance to what could have been a good work environment. And, and, and you've kind of put all this negative attention on yourself, on the scenario, and it just becomes a bad experience. How, how do you go about correcting that? How do you go about stopping yourself if you kind of a, a little self-check moment, you know, I can only imagine you're in, the, you're in the heat of the moment, you're very passionate about your decision, 
And I'm asking you that in the middle of that passion, you kind of have to mentally also realize what you're doing and maybe back down somehow uh, from, from that passionate roller coaster that you're taking yourself on. Uh, so ha- whether you're the one doing it or you're the one witnessing it, uh, w- what's the role there on, on how to correct of how to put that individual back on the, on the track of, that they should be? You know, I think, Herman, like in order to even back down, you have to be aware that you need to, right? And and I think for too long in the arts in general, but definitely in, in the performing arts, people are not self-aware, right? And so you're coming into a space where, yes, you're passionate about an idea, Um, but, but in the moment in the space, you're also totally overwhelmed, but you're unaware that you're overwhelmed, right? So all that's coming out is not passion. It's just overwhelm. It's just like Mm -hmm. spewing out of you. Um, so one of the things I think just to go back to your statement about educators being responsible, one of the things that I try to do as an educator is get students to ground themselves in themselves. And I allow them to literally walk away if they need to walk away. Like they don't have to say, I'm overwhelmed, I'm walking. They can literally just walk away because chances are as the like grounded person in the room, I already know that you've entered the space in a heightened state of something, right? Something else is happening and it's not actually about your design idea getting shifted or changed, right? It's, it's actually about your, your ego. Um, but the more aware we are of ourselves, the more we're capable of taking a, taking a beat, right? And, and not causing harm to our own professional standing, but also to, to whoever we're interacting with in, in the room. In, in Jen's hypothetical scenario, an interesting aspect that she uh, begins to implicate there is if you're the grounded one that's witnessing this moment that's, that's going awry, uh, also being able to, as a grounded one, kind of step back and not take things personal uh, and recognize the human behind that person, right? Like, we don't know what happened outside of that room. You know, we, we've all had our generic rolled out of the wrong side of bed kind of thing, our own personal baggage that as, as best as we try to do, we bring that with us to work. And, and we're also in an industry that is so personal. Our personal and work lives are so intertwined that it's hard to not bring that. So it, that, that perspective is also kind of interesting of recognizing of like, maybe this person just needed to vent. Maybe this person just needed to come into the room, yell about what to you may seem ridiculous, but that emotional release is going to make all the difference for the person. And once you catch that person after that meeting outside of the room, you could potentially witness a complete 180 and that was it, that was it. It was just something personal happened. And, and again, recognizing, let's recognize the person. You know, we're, we're calling them designers, we're calling them TDs, but there's a human being behind that. They're not designers and TDs 24 seven. Something else happened. The idea that we are people and are a human industry 
like we're all humans, right? And we're telling human stories, but we don't we don't want to acknowledge that humans have anything outside of the the space at all, right? Like we are supposed to show up, do a 10 of 12, which as we all know for designers and technicians is like a 12 of 14, right? If you're lucky to get the two hours. You're supposed to do that for multiple days in a row after having just built, designed, cued, whatever the show. And yet we expect you to show up in, in stress and, and remain calm. I think that a lot of the ego piece is tied into emotion. And, and I think the self-advocacy piece of the question is tied into that the pragmatic and analytical way of, of looking at the situation. So, and as a very analytical person, I hope, um, I, I think that I'm a good self-advocate. Uh, and, and when it comes to salaries, when it comes to these self-advocacy pieces, I try and leave the emotion out of it. And the idea of either, either the math is there or it's not. So I keep being reminded in Tyler's question of this moment that was just a couple of years ago. So I was like a fully grounded designer at that point um, where the, the director and the artistic director were having an argument after first dress rehearsal about a specific costume look. And I was sitting there like watching them back and forth. It was like a tennis game. This opinion, this opinion, this opinion, this opinion, this opinion, this opinion. And I was just like, it was about my work, right? But I'm just listening. And the artistic director goes away and the director comes to me and says, I don't care what they say. I don't want that. And I'm like, okay, well, I heard the whole conversation. So tomorrow morning, I'm going to, luckily it was a modern show, right? Tomorrow morning, I'm going to go out and I'm going to make this work, right? And, and so the analytical part, John, took over, right? There was no attachment to what was already on stage involved emotionally, um, the analytical part of I listened to this and I listened to this and now I'm going to thread the needle and figure out the solution to the problem tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. at Russ, right? Like somehow we're going to have a new new costume for second dress. Um, but But that came from analytical problem solving, not from oh, we're going to cut the the costume I've already like purchased fit put on stage and maybe still attached to just put the attachment down and, and solve the problem. And, and, you know, I, I feel actually like I stumbled upon this concept in, in the context of this conversation of the self-advocacy being analytical and the ego being emotional. And, and I, I think that concept, like that's something that's going to stay with me. Like I, I feel pretty strongly about it. Jen's story of, of her, her show reference there also makes me think of uh, even myself also just a couple years so uh, a graphic designer as well I was doing uh, the mountaintop uh, if, if you guys don't know that show it's about uh, Martin Luther King Jr's final days uh, at the hotel uh, and the story ends with all of a sudden the lead actor you're seeing him kind of go from Martin Luther King to 
the modern day man. And this slide shows happening again from Dr. King's time and you're seeing these images until present time. And we were talking about that, that magical moment there, like how do we create this? And the director told me her, her visions and uh, it just wasn't making sense to me. I just wasn't getting it. And I, I definitely internally, I was like, you wanna do what? Uh, that, that, that doesn't make sense. We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that. And I had that moment of that little reluctant moment of I wanted to be that that kind of stubborn designer, but like, nah, that's not going to work out. Uh, but still giving her the moment and saying like, yeah, let's try it out. Uh, and verbally, I didn't get it. But once all the pieces came together, and at first, once we literally just did everything that she was asking for, and the actor took it away and led us through this moment, I remember being like in the balcony of this theater. And as soon as that monologue ended, just yelling down the director, and like, oh, I get it. I get it. Now, and I, and I kept continuing just yelling at her and just saying like, we got to go back. We got to do it again. Cause now all of a sudden all these ideas were coming through my head. Like, oh, I, I got the vision. I got the vision. And, uh, and I'd, I'd like to think that it was mainly due to being open. That's a huge success story. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and even though, you know, mid-process, you might have said, well, I don't want to work with this director again. At the end of it, hopefully, you were able to say, you know, I, I built on this success. We now have a new level and layer of trust that, that yeah, will yeah. help future collaborations. Sure, sure. My thought process never got that cynical, that negative of like, I, I, I definitely never had an issue with the director. She was great. That's very uh, analytical of you and not a <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I guess, I guess if we round this off, right, uh, we've talked about the, the self-advocacy, the ego portion. So like the good, bad side of these questions. Uh, and uh, so, so, what what is what is the ending lesson? You know, what is the message that we give to that person? Uh, I'm not even going to put an age before this, uh, but what is that message that we give to that person that is struggling with with self advocacy, uh, with struggling of just taking themselves away out of the equation and and just trying things out, whether it's a conversation, whether it's a, a new design, whether it's just taking that, that risk, which in all honesty, probably isn't really a risk at all. Uh, they're just viewing it as one. So what, what's, that, what's that closing message? I, I think finding ways to silo um, emotion and, and analytical thinking. Those are your key words for this episode. <laughs> they are. I was brought to you by analytical and emotion. Uh, yeah. Jen, what do you think? The only thing I, I would add is uh, to ground yourself, right? And and that's a daily practice. So make space for, for yourself and taking care of yourself. And when you're feeling like ungrounded in some way, overwhelmed, sad, exhausted, frustrated, take a, take a moment and ground yourself. And sometimes that's literally as easy as reminding yourself that your feet are literally touching the ground right now. 
right? Mm-hmm. There's no reason to be like spinning out of control in your own mind if you can just breathe and say and, and feel your feet on the ground. Uh, when I think back to Tyler's original question, um, Tyler being a student himself about to graduate, um, I think inherently our, our willingness to want to swoop in and help and support uh, kind of automatically activated within us, you know, and here we are just kind of pouring out all this advice and, and just in our own words saying like everything's going to be okay and uh, you know, with experience, you gain confidence, but we're going to create a good room, a good environment for you to, to gain that confidence even earlier, even before you get experience. Um, and, and that's all great. And I don't disagree with that. Uh, and, and, and some solutions that we even talked about is, is being open to discussions and being open to listening to that person that you may be perceiving as the difficult person, uh, the difficult collaborator. But being open to that conversation, and that could solve issues of advocacy, that could solve issues of ego. Um, but I think it's also important to note that uh, just because the question originated with somebody younger than us, uh, all these issues are multi-generation. Uh, there's, there's people younger our age and older that have self-advocacy issues. Uh, I will certainly throw my own name in the hat there. Of, of advocating for myself. Uh, I just gave the example of where potentially my own ego was getting in the way of a, of a process of a, of a show, of a moment within a show. Um, so being able to flip our own advice, because just like uh, with, ex- with years of experience, you gain confidence. I think we can also say that with years of experience, you can also become stubborn as well. And that's an issue on the flip side. That, that we're having to deal with. So uh, recognizing that it, it works both ways, uh, recognizing that even you as an educator could have moments that you're gonna be the student uh, and it all just lends itself to, to being that open. And, and, and these are good self-checks moments because you could be very well on that path of stubbornness of becoming that old collaborator that we don't wanna, that old curmudgeon that we've all talked about that we don't want to work with. And if you allow yourself these, all these moments of openness throughout your careers, it, they're good little moments that kind of get you back on track where you may be asleep at the wheel and kind of you're really to one side. This is great, great. Thank you all. And uh, I guess we stay tuned for our next episode, which will be presented now in this last call. All right, guys, we've arrived to the last call portion of our podcast here on 801. And for today's podcast, we have Eve Brunswick with us. Uh, Let's give Eve a big uh, welcome. Uh, Why don't you give us an introduction of yourself? Hi, my name is Eve Brunswick. I use she, her pronouns, and I attend the University of Buffalo. And the University of Buffalo operates on land, which is the territory of the Seneca Nation, a member of the Haudenosaunee Six Nations Confederacy. I'm super happy to be here. Um, I am a student of John's at the University of Buffalo, studying design and technology. Awesome. Welcome, Steve. Great to have you here. Uh, So 
we're very interested in learning uh, some more about you. Uh, you told us where you're at right now. Uh, in your what year again? Sophomore. Where Where are you going to go after? Have you had any thoughts there? Well, I think that more school is not out of the picture. And I think that I am not exactly sure what my concentration is going to be, but I definitely have like a management brain and I like to organize things and I'm really enjoying this random class that I'm in all about Excel. So I think that I'm really interested in learning more and experiencing more of like events and things on that side, because right now I have some technical direction and stuff like that, but I'm really kind of open to anything that is a job and is going to be fulfilling. I mean, I think that like out of, when I leave college, I'm not expecting to get a job job right out of the way. And I think I definitely have some time to explore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about outside the theater? What, what's, what's a little fun fact about yourself? So the fun fact is about myself and um, I come from a single parent household and my father, who is wonderful, um, owns and operates a campground in Ulster County, New York. So I'm originally from New York City um, and I lived there until a few months ago and now I live in Ulster County and he um, worked on Wall Street until he was 30 and then quit and worked in real estate. And about five years ago, he bought a campground thinking that it was gonna be like a hotel. And it is nothing like that. Um, he hates the outdoors, which is really funny because I love the outdoors. <laughs> and I've been like hiking and climbing and all of that. You kind of kick us off on our episode as to what we're going to talk about. I'm interested to hear what you've brought to the table for us to talk about. Yeah, um, I am here to talk about success and what that means. Um, I think that it is a very sophisticated concept. It involves a lot of different things. And I think that the reason why I'm here kind of is because I think that certain people view me as more successful than others. Like somebody who's an engineer might see, oh my goodness, like, why isn't she still in engineering? But some of my teachers are like, wow, Eve, you're so self-advocating you're so outspoken and in that ways I'm really successful and I am proud of that and I think that like I have definitely learned through some of my harder times in life that you need to be vocal and you need to advocate for yourself but I think that like accepting that it's not your thing is definitely a form of success for me like I think that I am much happier not that happiness equals success maybe you see success as fulfilling your dream as writing a book or as starring a show or as lighting, lighting a specific project. But like, are you missing out on the stuff to get there? Can you learn something from your failures? Um, I think that failures are still really valuable. Gotcha. So if I'm hearing you correctly, then the, the question is, uh, how, do, how do we view success? How do we measure success? And as we strive to be successful, are we missing out on some key points? Yeah, I mean, to distill it, I think that I'm kind of wondering how you define success and how you deal 
with the uncertainty of the process of getting to whatever the goal is and if your definition of success changed throughout that process. We, we hope to do your question justice and at the very least, it, it might spark some other conversations elsewhere. Uh, thank you again, Eve. Thank you for joining us on 801. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to hear about your different experiences and how you view success as a result of that. Mm-hmm.